Welcome to episode 45 of the Health Mastery Show and today I have on my first roundtable of guests. I've had all of these guests on before individually, Eric Helms, Alan Flanagan and Danny Lennon, but today I brought them all together to discuss the topic of who to trust online. So we go right in depth into how to look out for certain myths or disinformation and perhaps some strategies to siphon out poor information. So this was a really interesting conversation. We did actually record this over Zoom, so the videos up on YouTube if you're listening to this on a podcast platform. But that did mean that we had some very minor internet problems, getting people from three different countries all on at the same time on a Zoom call isn't the best when everybody's working from home. But I have made sure to edit it properly so that there's very minimal issues at all. But if you do notice like a slight jump or something, that's likely just due to uh, internet issues. If you're not subscribed to the podcast already, please do subscribe. Please do go follow all the guys and their various social media platforms and where they write content, etc. They're all very smart guys and put out some great information. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Eric, Alan and Danny. So guys, thanks once again for all of you coming on. I know I know I've had all of you on the podcast before, uh, but but never together and this is actually the first time i've had multiple people on the podcast so hopefully my internet stays stays up working and uh we can get this without any errors so and another thing to, to mention is that it's it's truly awesome to be able to get people like like yourselves on a podcast it's like whenever i'm thinking about being grateful it's just i think about being able to get the likes of yourselves and danny on the podcast <laughs> so uh I suppose I'll, I'll start with <laughs> I'll start with you, Eric. Would you like to introduce yourself, um, who you are, what you do, and then we'll go. Absolutely. I'm a uh, I have a PhD in being a podcast guest at this point. I think that it's an honorary <laughs> one from the internet. Um, so, but before that, I was a science communicator. Um, and uh, no, honestly, it's it's, on, it's an honor to be on back again, Adam. Appreciate it. 3DMJ for life. And um, yeah, I am a research fellow at the Auckland University of Technology who studies sports science as it relates to physique and strength sport. And I am also a practitioner myself of lifting weights, uh, primarily, first, most, most importantly. Um, do a little coaching, do a little writing, do a little reviewing, do a little podcasting, and uh, do a little advising to my colleagues um, at 3DMJ. So yeah, I'm all about anything weightlifting, nutrition for weightlifting, and I lift weights. I'm a very one-dimensional person. Sweet. Alan? Yeah, I, 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 I formerly lifted weights prior to COVID. Now I've been <laughs> developing fatty liver is alcoholic-induced. Uh, <laughs> and no, I, I, I just, I don't actually think my liver is fat. Um, so I'm currently writing up my thesis, um, PhD, looking at timing of food intake, um, behavioral rhythms and circadian rhythms. We did a lab study. I'm about to start recruiting for an observational study tomorrow. Uh, so you'll see that on Instagram. So if you have any friends that want to take part in a study, let me know. Um, and yeah, I have various outputs online, one of which is with Danny. Um, we have the 
podcast feature that will we record every month and then it goes out in the schedule. We're producing kind of authoritative statements on various issues in nutrition. Um, they tend to be kind of big, like umbrella reviews so far, although we're trying to get a bit more granular on some specific questions. And also on my own website where, as you know, Adam, I have the weekly review um, and uh, kind of regular webinars and other articles. So a lot of science communication to sprinkle on to my doctorate, which has definitely been an interesting ride. And Danny, as you get your intro podcast carbs. Yes. Um, Thanks for having me back on, Adam. It's a surprise that someone has talked to me once and wants to talk to me again. So that's a pleasure. Uh, I think uh, the easiest way to sum up me is I have a company called Sigma Nutrition, which is focused primarily on putting out evidence-based information on nutrition science. As Ella mentioned, that's primarily done through the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio, as well as written content, including our Sigma statements, which Ellen also referenced. I've been lucky to do uh, lectures and seminars uh, related to nutrition as well. And I suppose I'm like the uh, first step in like an evolutionary ladder here of no PhD, while Alan is in the progress of doing one, and then Eric has one. So I'm at the uh, non-doctorate level. So uh, yeah, we have a nice linear chart here. Yeah, it's well, dose response. I, 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 uh, you. Another way you could frame that is that some of us need PhDs to be effective. Some of us don't, you know. So you're crushing it, Danny. I definitely have gathered that there are reasons for doing one uh, that may be career related. Um, but there are a lot of reasons not to do one, you know, um, whereas in my case, it was an inevitability. If I wanted to leave law and get into nutrition research, this is one of those need to do scenarios. So yeah, fun and games. Yeah. So before I kind of let this run off into some uh, chat, like having points around the table, and because I know that's the way we will go if I don't intervene, um, the reason I got you guys on is because I think it's a nice mix of Eric. I know you're more on the exercise side of things and that's the way you've kind of framed your career. Um, but, and Alan and Danny, not that you guys are too far removed from that. I know that on your podcast, you have, you've got people who are interested in exercise science or, or, or do research in that sense, but maybe more so that the work that you publish um, is more so health related. Not that the two are mutually exclusive, but Sometimes they're not necessarily inclusive either. So I'd like to start with the first question to get things going and we'll go in the same order. And, and what's that's what is something that you thought to be true that now that you look back on it, how, however many years later, that is completely bizarre. Eric? Completely bizarre. I was ready to, to answer that question until you said completely bizarre. And I was like, like, there are some things I've changed my mind on, but I don't know that I've changed my mind on anything that is that, is that outside of, of, of the realm of, of normalcy. Um, so I'm going to downstep it and make it less uh, less bizarre. But I would say that I had a overall more negative opinion of uh, how ketogenic diets would affect um, lean mass retention, performance, um, and also adherence and um, efficacy uh, in, in, in both weight loss trials, um, and in trials of using it for like sports performance or sports nutrition in the last few years, there's been some data that's come out where, 
you've seen uh, strength athletes maintain strength while losing some weight um, and not seeing a ton of uh, adherence issues. Um, overall, the data would suggest that ketogenic diets are like an option. Um, they certainly require a little more what I would describe as rigid restraint. Um, so there's that, and there's not much avoiding that, but they also, you know, compared to what most would conceive of as like a quote unquote flexible restraint model, they probably require a little less education, uh, and a little, little less front loading of figuring out how am I going to do this? Um, so, so I think I'm very comfortable with the idea of someone using them for making weight or a, uh, short-term cut that's not intended to maintain the loss weight permanently. Um, especially if that's for, you know, sport performance where you're trying to hold on to strength and just drop a little bit of body weight, maybe some body water. Um, and there's some data to suggest that it may even, you know, blunt hunger and, and induce some satiety more than you'd expect from a, a moderate carb, higher protein diet. Uh, so yeah, it's uh that, that, that's probably the first one that popped in my head. I don't know how bizarre that is, but I tried Oh, and also I used to think the earth was flat, but that seems pretty reasonable <laughs> to me. Go ahead. <laughs> it hasn't been disproved. Uh, Alan? So, so uh, this might come as a surprise given um, what I have in recent years put out on the subject, but, but it may be because of that. Um, and I'm going to go with uh, saturated fat uh, in the diet and, and heart disease. Um you know, when I was becoming interested in, in nutrition at the start, before I took any kind of formal steps towards education, I was very much self-learning and reading papers. And this would have been around the time that, you know, the Siri Torino meta-analysis had came out that really got the conversation going. And it just seemed like meta-analysis after meta-analysis of prospective cohort studies came out. No association, no association. And I thought, wow, what did this, this must be it. Um, and it was when I got to the MSC at Surrey, that I had my MSc supervisor, Professor Bruce, Bruce Griffin, who uh, me and Danny just recorded a podcast that went out with Professor Chris Packard. Bruce was his postdoc at Glasgow. You know, really, really brilliant, not just kind of understanding of lipidology, but nutrition as a science. And, and he was the one that got me thinking about some of the nutrition-specific issues that give rise to um, methodological challenges with with for example, meta-analysis, um, the comparisons of levels of intake, why if blood cholesterol is, is adjusted for, then we have problems and all of this additional information that I never would have been able to, to learn on my own. Um, and it completely recolored the entire evidence base. Um, and so that was that was one of those great moments of like, what don't I know? here, <laughs> um, And how can I reconcile with this, with this new understanding? How can I maybe better reconcile that evidence? So, yeah, I mean, if you had asked me in 2015, is there any association with saturated fat and heart disease? I would have said, absolutely not. Haven't you heard Chris Kresser? Uh, <laughs> and here I am in 2021 with a slightly different answer. Uh, perfectly different actually so and, and an answer that i should say particularly in the in the in the kind of bro space and in the evidence-based fitness community um still isn't something people want to hear um and, and you still get these same shitty studies thrown about the place um with with general reckless abandon with, without an understanding for a lot of these issues that that go with it and that's going after saturated fat you just try to come after protein you watch what will happen 
really <laughs> crucified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in terms of like the the super high protein, because well, there was this phase that for a few years, wasn't there, where people were like four grams per kilo, and you were just what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there was the, the series of Antonio studies that looked at uh over one gram per pound and they were basically the oh i guess protein is completely safe in all contexts even at high intakes and i'm like well this is the them tracking it on my fitness pal and in, and three people eating it for for two years at high intakes <laughs> they didn't die and their their blood panels look good so i i, I guess it's okay for everyone in the whole population for 20 years right. this is coming from a guy who eats high protein but it is i've always found it funny that when something doesn't fit your bias you're happy to dismiss a 5,000 person prospective, you know, analysis. If you've got your, if you've got your, your eight person, uh, you know, RCT, because you know, the evidence pyramid. So I, yeah. I know where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with protein folks for the record. Protein <laughs> is great. Eat all of it. Go ahead. Uh, oh, uh, me, uh, I guess kind of related to some of those. I, was very much um, sympathetic towards some of the arguments based on like an ancestral health model or evolutionary biology model, essentially where you come from like the paleo diet community, essentially people putting out that type of information of that kind of narrative of why certain foods would be better for us versus not um, the problem of like modern agriculture and, and, why taking out certain foods would be beneficial, um, particularly things like grains and especially if it's a gluten-containing grain. And I think that was, in in retrospect, obviously just complete uh, nonsense that everyone will suffer if they consume any degree of gluten, as an example. Um, and just at a more meta level, that type of narrative is... It, most of the time is actually not even based on reality if you were to talk to an anthropologist, for example. Um, and it's also just a, a fallacy in most, most of the time. So I think that type of line of thinking was appealing once upon a time before I formally studied any nutrition. And so I can certainly sympathize as to why people uh, find that appealing and why it makes sense because it's set up to do that. But uh, that is probably one I've mentioned among many because I've done a lot of bizarre things with my diet, which I'm happy to mention. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I find that the paleo ancestral movements, there is something inherently attractive about some of the narratives that it created. Yeah, I, I definitely think of the dietary movements there is something less threatening, slightly more accessible, and, and a narrative that I think kind of contrasts nicely with modern society in a lot of ways that people like. And it straddles yes. a lot of correlations that are related to like being more right. active. You know, what is perceived as a higher protein, higher vegetable, higher fruit diet. So, yeah. Mm. It's, it's fact-adjacent, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 got you know, um, it, it just kind of went off the press, you know. Like I mean, suddenly then people not only following ancestral diets were were doing bulletproof coffee, and I was just like, I don't, 
another butter butter of all foods, you know, which would require some sort of, you know, uh, at least churning process at a very minimum would have been a, quite as evolutionarily consistent. Um, and I, I certainly don't think it was going into coffee. So yeah, it just kind of, all of these things that got labeled ancestrally just turned out to be high fat, high saturated fat foods. Um, and that does touch into the whole, like, who do you trust online aspect? Because one thing really scratched my head on with people that are hardcore in the kind of paleo ancestral space is whether they just learned everything off other people's blogs, other people in that space, you know, a Mark Sisson type character, because whenever I ask them about, well, well, well what, what do paleolithic anthropologists and researchers in that area estimate the paleolithic diet saturated fat content was, you know, and tell them six to 8%, they just won't believe it. And I'm like, it's in the research. <laughs> You're welcome to look at it. And so they actually haven't even read any of the kind of uh, research bases for some of the, the statements. They've just kind of made up their own vision of what it would have been like. So, so Alan, on that point, where do you draw the line? For example, like I read your blogs, I read the blogs you do on Danny's things. I, I read, uh, Eric's blogs and I've read Eric's blogs for, for a number of years and I'm if we're talking about that educational hierarchy I'm, I'm probably at the bottom I am at the bottom I have not quite finished my master's yet so um, but I'd still consider myself to have a higher level of nutritional education than the vast majority of people who who read the work that you put out maybe not the, the work that you guys put out but generally health and fitness if we separate them advice but even you know, a lot of people that you would follow so where do we say like, oh, that blog is not a blog you should follow or this is a blog that you should follow. Um, and we've seen with like the recent, uh, the recent pandemic, a lot of people are saying like, read the research and they're, they're reading like, I don't know, BBC News or something. Yeah, I, 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 I've tried to come up with some sort of framework to think about this. Um, and I think it's difficult. Uh, so one one way of coming at it is from a fairly ruthless place, to be honest. If, if someone is new to this whole area of health, diet, nutrition, um, training, then, then the one thing that I'll tend to advise is stay away from anyone who has an open, declared belief system, whether that's about, you know, uh, a diet, uh, I'm not sure how much it happens in, in the kind of strength and conditioning world, but I'm sure it does. Um, but, you know, if someone is vegan something or low carb something or keto something, and that, and that, that next thing is a, their role as a healthcare professional, vegan doctor, low carb doctor, or low carb dietitian or whatever, that's a fucking red flag. Like just don't consume their material because and, and you've got this trend now, particularly with the vegan doctors in America who are like, oh, we're the evidence-based vegans. Like, what does that even mean? It means that you're still using science to come to a conclusion that you would have come to anything. So I, I have a fairly ruthless view of, of, of that. Um, I think if someone has an open allegiance, you simply cannot trust them to be 
to be objective. Even some of the ones that are a little bit, there are one or two vegan docs in the States who are, you know, better overall and more objective and willing to criticize their people in their own movement and call them out for bullshit. But you still, you still ultimately can't ever fully trust that the conclusion they've arrived at is necessarily free from the, the belief that they have. So I think avoiding allegiance to a particular paradigm, whatever that is, diet or, or training uh, way is, is a useful heuristic for people new to this space to avoid consuming information that may ultimately turn out to be wrong. And, and Danny, do you think that this is, is it, is it just because like an information age uh, that we have, there's, there's more pseudoscience or just more information out there? Like to give an example, when you started your podcast, you're probably one of the only podcasts in, in the health and fitness space that I can recall at least. It could have been 10 years ago, maybe. Um, now there's, you know, everybody, including myself as a podcast. So what, what do you think is the, oh, kind is of the driver in that? Mm. Yeah, there's a particularly problematic one that I won't name. Uh, yeah, uh, to be honest, I, I think the the same issues that relate to nutrition science, um, confusion and misinformation are the ones that are everywhere else in society right now. Of A lot of places there's misinformation, then there's purposeful disinformation, uh, which people profit off. There's also the, the kind of unique problem now of everyone's sources of information are uniquely curated through social media feeds, YouTube, uh, where they're tending to get their recommendations. There's no central hub that nobody, that people go to anymore. There's a significant distrust in major institutions and, uh, in, in the nutrition space, this manifests as like government guidelines are typically bashed by all sorts of groups. Um, any consensus opinion, um, any kind of establishment, for example, the WHO now is like a super easy target. And so because of that, where a lot of people get their source of information is from somewhere on social media or YouTube. And then over time through algorithms, there's going to be fed that same type of content and they're going to be in those types of forums. And it just creates again, this uh, problem of that they're being shown something that's going to reinforce a certain bias. And so a large part of it is probably luck, good or bad, depending on what someone stumbles across of what area they get interested in. And it's a point I've made before about a lot of people who end up in uh, following evidence-based uh, people in fitness or nutrition, a lot of that might have just been luck. And they might give themselves too much praise for being evidence-based or an evidence-based follower versus someone else who's following paleo or low carb who just got up unlucky to come across those people and hasn't yet been exposed to better quality information. So I, I think the problems are the same as we're facing in like politics and just society more broadly. And um, I'm actually quite pessimistic about the future, but there's probably smarter people that may have some optimism or some degree of a solution. Uh, but I think those would be a few things that I think come to mind. Um, and then there, there are some unique aspects to nutrition science, which we maybe can get into in that it's an area where if someone's looking for information, not, not only should we have like a consensus of like, general dietary guidelines like what is a healthy diet now you have people who are academics medical doctors and so on who 
will come out and publicly say those things are wrong, say something else is right, and but that's just multiplied by four or five different types of dietary paradigms. So people are uh, understandably confused and kind of weary of hearing all this stuff, and so are, just aren't going to know where to turn. So um, yeah, I think there there's significant challenges that I'm not sure how we we tackle to be honest mm. and, and i think um like you said you, you kind of fall into a camp when you first start and i think i just got lucky that i started following lane norton when i was like 16 and it was evidence-based and not into i don't know carnivore dave or whoever's is the latest uh the latest person that people follow these days so it wasn't necessarily that i was, was more critical thinking or knew more it's just got lucky um Eric, do you think that that disinformation in the the fitness and, and training space is less harmful than it could be in the health space? Because I know that there's they're not necessarily overlapping, but there's a there's quite a lot of disinformation in, in both sides. Yeah, most of the disinformation in the fitness space is, I think, certainly more innocuous, um, and most of it is relatively. It all, most of it kind of lands in the space of this is still a positive for you because you're engaging in fitness, but I've convinced you that my exercise system um, is, is the best so that you'll buy it. So it's nor- it normally has a, um, a more innocuous motivation behind it. And I do think most of the bad information in the fitness space is misinformation rather than disinformation. I think Hanlon's razor applies a, a lot, you know, don't ascribe malice to something that ignorance can explain. Um, and um, I think, I think that's probably applies to a lot of arenas. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's definitely there in the fitness space. Um, probably a more innocuous. Um, most often it's, it's miss versus disinformation. Um, and, you know, I was reflecting as you were talking about where you started Adam, and it reminded me of, I started in a, in a similar space of who I started following and what I was attracted to. And I was listening to, you know, Alan and Danny kind of reflect on some aspect of you get filtered and exposed to something and then you're stuck there. I think that's why it's really important as anyone who's trying to put out information to be very attentive to the way you speak and, and how you educate your audience rather than just presenting them information, because I would say at this point, Adam, you, I, I've seen this just in the way you operate. You're very intentional about trying to evaluate your own thinking processes, being a critical thinker, trying to be rational, looking for empirical data. Um, you know, earlier when you started this, this, uh, this line of question to the three of us, you were like, Hey, you know, what's the difference between these folks who are following all the paleo blogs and me, I follow your guys' blogs. And I think the difference is that you've, you've drunk the evidence-based Kool-Aid which is, is ironically a Kool-Aid of don't drink any Kool-Aids. And I think regardless of whether you're following primary sources or people who are communicating primary sources, you're actually aware of that. And I don't think most people in those other circles are even necessarily aware of the, of the meta conversation that we're having. They don't think about who are paleo researchers. If you were to ask them, what is a paleo researcher? they would, it would quickly become aware that they're not necessarily aware that there are physical anthropologists who specialize in the diet of, of, of ancient civilizations. That's not a thing they've actually thought about. Hmm. They got exposed to this in a certain context of nutrition for health because me or a family member has a problem or I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. And then you look up one day and you're in a bubble. 
So I think at some point, whether it might have been, uh, you know, after your initial inoculation into the, the evidence-based bodybuilding community by St. Norton, uh, like baptism, myself. Baptism, I would like to say. Yes, baptism about work, right? Yeah. Or um, or whether it was, you know, somewhat intentional, but maybe not quite as uh, as, as, as something that you were, it was spoken at the time. Um, there, there wasn't a, a, an awareness of the fact that there is a, an empirical method of, of finding things out. And this is someone who is telling you about that science. So I think that step is, is a piece that some people just don't have at all. They're, they're, they're like, it's still this kind of an, an element of guruism and guruism certainly didn't start in the fitness you know, industry that's been around forever. And it's, you know, but it's placing faith in, in someone's interpretation of the world. Um, so I remember when I first started following Lane Norton way back in the day and, and other folks in that space, and they would always refer to the research and the science and talk about it. And I think that is to some degree distinctly different from most of the spaces we're talking about. And I think you have a lot more potential entry points when you are dealing with someone who is misinformed, but thinks they are evidence-based or at least aware that there is evidence because they're less likely to have a like a, an, an escape from any from the arguments that, that leverage that, that evidence. They may have been exposed to a, the wrong corner of it or a, a biased subsample. Um, but, uh, but like, for example, uh, Gary Tobbs, I think, is someone who tells a story and uses uh, a, a slice of research, but not all of it. But I've engaged with a lot of people who used to follow Gary Tobbs because they became interested in the science. Um, and then that enabled them to have an entry point of seeing things a little differently. So I think, I think that's just a little element of nuance. I wanted to add what we've discussed already, but I agree with everything thus far. Mm. And, and Alan, do yeah. you feel that, do you feel like, I know that the, the kind of content that you tend to produce is more, I would say for, well, not more so, but there's a lot of public health in the in, entwined in there and, and tackling some public policy issues, which may not be necessarily the same content or audience that Eric is aiming towards people who want to kind of do the the fancy pants stance and, and get you know ultra lean yeah it's great bicep um so do, do you think i know that danny mentioned that like people in the evidence base like whether they're 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 trainers or nutritionists um they tend to attack the the public health guidelines and to be honest when i you know a couple of years ago i also thought the same like why would you be these such these such kind of basic guidelines that seem that you know reduce sugar well, well sugars you know it, it's about calories it's not about sugar like these kind of things yeah. um do you, do you think that um like the content that you or the content that you see that perhaps is mis or disinformation can be more harmful because um because of the type of audience that would kind of read the content or the content of those that read your content yeah, I think there's a couple of levels because I think um, and there's been obviously um, good differentiation between misinformation and disinformation um, so far. And I, I think we need that level of, of granularity when we when we discuss. I think there is within certain circles, I think there is willful disinformation that, I, that I'm happy to uh, ascribe to particularly cholesterol denialists and, and that movement um, because either and some of them 
are people who to speak to seem to have read every paper you've read, right? So if they have, and they've, and they're still coming out with the same kind of stuff that they're coming out, well, then it can only be because of total cognitive dissonance uh, for the research that exists and an active decision, conscious decision to ignore it and continue with a narrative um, and publicly disseminating that narrative to the wider population that is harmful um, and, and absolutely. And, and, and there in a couple of, you know, Western countries in the last couple of years, um, particularly since uh, ironically since 2014 is when you can see the trend. So around the time these papers come, you know, you have populations where saturated fat is not going down anymore. It's going up. Um, you have people, there was an estimate a paper just to give this some kind of concrete example in 2010, uh, Asim Alhatra is a, a cardiologist here, uh, wrote a paper about how statins are, are not to be recommended. Um, and that the evidence for saturated fat is wrong and that we need to be encouraging people to be eating more of these natural fats. The BMJ obviously published it because it's the BMJ and this is a narrative they've been pushing um, which is unconscionable for a medical journal of that, of that supposed stature. And there was a paper that came out after that, about two years after that, talking about spin in the biomedical literature. And it estimated that it was based on an, an included reference that estimated that after Malhotra's paper in the year after that, there was um, uh, an, an increase, a significant increase in the number of people declining statins uh, when they were when they were recommended in primary care. Um, that was predicted to potentially lead to 3000 cardiovascular events. If, if the, if the number is held uh, over the next, over the three years following that, that's not benign. We're talking about people having a heart attack or a stroke because they didn't take a statin when they were told to, because they heard from a cardiologist in a reputable medical journal that they didn't need to take the drug and they just needed to eat more bacon and butter. That's disinformation. So I think that within that community, I, I, I would I would consider them to be uh, willful um, proponents of disinformation. I think misinformation, I, I think you kind of get that a lot. Um, and I don't think it's always intentional. I think that it's easy for people who are particularly even trying to be evidence-based to pick up on snippets of stuff, right? Um, or Or take a study and, you know, interpret it in a way that's not entirely incorrect, but probably not the full full story either. So I think you get a lot of that because it's very vogue to be evidence-based. I think you get a lot of people in health and fitness trying to be evidence-based, um, but maybe putting out information that actually doesn't have the same level of, of, of kind of context and, and applicability. Um, and then I think with a lot of the conversations that we have now around issues like your know, weight stigma um, and then even just kind of like processed foods, uh, individual responsibility. I think we have a lot of these kind of narratives that are, that are, that are quite um, heavy right now. There's a lot of um, debate back and forth and angry shouting 
Um, and I think they're not helping anyone um, in the population. I don't think this framing of, you know, obesity or diet-induced, diet-related chronic disease through this lens of just personal responsibility and willpower, it, it not only lacks any evidence, it's, it's purely an ideological construct. And I don't think that helps. I don't think it's disinformation, but like it certainly colors things in a misinformation type of way. And I think a lot of those conversations uh, are taking a grain of truth that suits the narrative and then running with it. And I don't think that helps either. So, yeah, I think that's it's a pretty long-winded way of saying I think there are communities that do engage in active disinformation. And that is going to harm people in the population. And, and indeed, we have some evidence for that potential harm happening. I think the rest, even misinformation, can potentially be harmful um, if someone starts doing something with their diet, that's a bit mad. Um, so yeah, I, I do think we need to be guarded about this stuff and the, you know, if it's misinformation and we're saying, well, you know, there's no real intent there. There's a, there's a line at which the lack of intent stops becoming a good enough excuse. Speaking of, um, like mad diets, I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard Danny talk about eating potatoes only once. Is that true? That is true. For for seven days, the only food I ate was potatoes. But, but this, this wasn't during the, the famine period, was it? Um, no, no. Uh, thankfully not. There was plentiful amounts. Uh, but that, that was one of the examples, yeah, that I, uh, I gave before of doing something quite bizarre, just based on kind of out of interest. And I kind of read about this potato hack thing of basically the the idea being that because there's such a high satiety index with white potatoes and if you don't like put butter or cream or any of this stuff on them just plain potatoes you can eat as much as you want of them over the course of the week and you have enough micronutrition and you have enough essential amino acids within those uh, that you just simply cannot eat enough to like calorically to uh to gain weight and you're probably going to drop body fat even just eating as much as you can of them so i was like oh why not <laughs> so that that's gonna be a good example of something that bizarre so i don't recommend it yeah um so i guess what what we see quite frequently in in both sides uh, in sort of the the fitness space but also the the more health related content is people often kind of expanding their sphere um to put themselves out there or to, to have a, a bit of a unique selling point. So often you'll see like fitness trainers or, or people who start to venture in towards um, like endocrinology or so, something that's kind of outside their wheelhouse. And, and the same for health. We'll see like often, like you mentioned, Alan, doctors who are keto doctors and they, they seem to use keto or, or carnivore or veganism for, for everything almost that they do not to turn this into something that a podcast that you know for, for people who create content but do you think that's that some people should avoid when they see or avoid content creators or people or a content that people create when they start to see things like that and and do you see that that, that is a growing kind of market or a growing topic amongst the the health and fitness space uh well my the way i would kind of think through that and this might relate to a, a later question you were planning on on, on taking up is it probably depends on someone's current level of knowledge and their skills to be able to decipher that information for themselves. So as an example, 
someone with absolutely no knowledge about diet uh, whatsoever would probably be best served by just saying, look, there are dietary guidelines there for a reason. They are backed by a overwhelming amount of literature. So like stick to those essentially as, as, as the baseline, because if they, there's no point in saying to that person, well, look, there is some nuance here. So go and read the primary research for yourself. It just makes no sense. So I think it probably depends on who you're talking to. Um, similarly, like you wouldn't want to discount someone just because of what their label is per se. What you really want to judge an argument on is the content of the argument. Now, the problem with that is for the average person on the street, they won't be able to um, kind of vet the information they're being fed by these people, particularly uh, like pseudoscientific information is very cleverly packaged. That's why it's so successful that it contains these half truths. It's very logical. It makes sense. There's a lovely narrative around it. It's emotional. And so getting someone to say, well, take the argument as face value isn't really useful, which is probably why you need some heuristic that's not perfect because you're going to screen out people who probably have good information. But as a general heuristic for most people, it might be useful to do what Alan said of saying, look, if they are marketing themselves based on their identity above anything else, that might be something where you can leave that aside because you can't really trust it. So I think heuristics are good probably for a lot of people like that. Um, but then for someone who does want to investigate those claims, then yeah, you can go and take someone's argument and it doesn't matter who they are or, or what their, uh, what label they put on themselves per se. If they have a good argument, they have a good argument. If they don't, they don't uh, level to be able to, to vet that information. Um, mm. So yeah, that, that's what first comes to mind at least. Yeah. I think, I think some, some other thoughts that I had just on this whole, kind of tr like judging maybe whether to, to trust a source is um, how they respond to being questioned. I think on particularly online is a really good indicator of um, their epistemic humility, shall we say. So the person asking the question is coming from a place of good faith, right? And they're assuming this person knows and they're like, Oh, but I heard, you know, this, that, and the other, and they might ask a question. And you'll, you'll see, you know, a, a really snappy response or, you know, a kind of condescending response or a dismissing response. And I, I, I think that speaks a lot. You know, any I, I've said this to, to one or two people um, before, but, uh, you know, particularly on social media, it's like a, a good science communicator, I think, on social media uh, will not just tell you this study found X but will show you how the study found it and, and why it, it's able to say what it's saying and put that in, in some context, right? And if someone's taking the time to do that, I think you could have no knowledge of a subject whatsoever, but you could pay attention to the process by which they're giving you that information and you could see, okay, there's some levels to this. So yeah, I think people, people being dismissive or be, uh, being defensive or reactionary when... Uh, followers uh, just ask a basic question. I think that's a red flag. Um, and I think just being seen to communicate that this might not be the full story, I think is also a, a good trait to look out for as well. Like, are they acknowledging that there's either blind spots with the evidence or not a lot of evidence, you know, with nutrition, with some questions, particularly as it relates to interventions, there's some places where we're just like, 
we don't we don't really know what's going on you know we don't really have a lot of data there so if people are making those kind of acknowledgements then i think that shows a level of um humility i like the way you frame that Alan. you're basically telling people what to look for not for what to mm. avoid because i think um it is <laughs> there's a lot of things to avoid and there's a lot of different tricks of the trade and i think if you've been in the game long enough you get used to seeing them like when i see someone lean on uh, indirect evidence when i know there's direct evidence available that sets off an alarm bell when i see someone speak to a non-science heavy audience using uh, mechanistic physiological or you mentioned like endocrinological endocrinological see i can't even say it when they talk about hormones unnecessarily um and it's not actually relevant to the direct point they're trying to make um that is a red flag to me um and and when they when they weave that into a story that's that's the standard thing it's like here's what we thought we knew um here is the uh, the, the mechanism or or the, or the physiology that at the very least is a hand wave, but potentially even point you in a different direction. Here's some indirect observational stuff and an anecdote we've all been lied to by my book. You know, that's basically the, the pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the only pattern, but there that's, it's one of the most popular ones. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in that because the difference between something that is, you know, a, a more solid finding versus mechanistic or something that's hypothetical versus, versus, versus proven it's more obvious to people who are in the game, but it's not if you're, if you're outside of it. So I don't fault someone for coming across a, an argument like that and going for it. Um, kind of going back to that Gary Tobbs example. But um, I think it is a little more helpful when you look for those things Alan talked about. Does someone have a scaled level of, of, of the way they describe evidence? Can they talk about something as, you know, this might indicate this. Or are they like, you know, I'm pretty sure about this and, and there's different evidence to apply to it. Um, do they talk about potential ways it might not be or, or context that it, is, it, it doesn't apply? Um, do they avoid, you know, hyperbolic discussions? And uh, do they talk about things in, in a light that isn't necessarily emotionally charged uh, when it doesn't seem necessary? Um, I think those are all things that you want to look for um, in someone because, even when they are wrong, um, they won't be leading you completely astray. Uh, they will be interpreting things in a, you know, an honest way as possible as to their exposure to the data. And that's really all anyone who is, you know, being for being charitable is, is can do. So I think, I think looking for traits of someone who is honestly trying to interpret the data and, and, and then make recommendations based on it is what someone should do and avoiding like logical fallacies, hyperbolic discussion, um, and, and weaving stories and, you know, basically going for indirect evidence when there is existing direct data are all things that, that you want to keep it, keep an eye out for as a red flag. Hmm. I, I think you made a, a really good point, Eric, uh, that you can kind of lose sight of, of people on the outside because, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually speaking to a doctor who I trust pretty, pretty well. Um, and he talked about plastics in, or estrogens or estrogen promoting plastics in, or, or substances in plastics and not an area that I know at all whatsoever. So started to look into it, started to um, follow this guy. who's a, he's a doctor, um, a PhD and has done his research in estrogens and 
like I said, it's not an area that I know at all, but as I was thinking about it, it's like, wow, actually maybe I am getting, uh, losing or lowering my testosterone from using shampoo or uh, microwaving my food in a, a Tupperware. But then as, as Danny said, um, having that heuristics heuristic of, you know, do they, are they just saying everything with such conviction? Are they a bit dismissive, like Alan said to people online? And then, uh, you know, complete the 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 pyramid. Do they have a book on the topic? <laughs> and lo and behold, the guy had a book on the topic. And at that point, in combination with being the guy being a you know, major COVID denier, then I decided maybe even though I don't understand this topic at all, and I don't, I, 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 I I'm never going to be able to understand that in depth. It's probably best to move away from it. But it's not necessarily easy for everybody to come full circle and it can easily suck people in. I can see how a lot of people get sucked in. Have you noticed, um, Danny over the last or, or since you kind of began your career, um, that your kind of conviction in what you say has changed or do you feel like from the beginning you were quite, um, uh, you quite, o- quite open-ended answers. Yeah. I, I think it's a weird paradox in that I'm, I, I state things with less certainty now because that's the best way to do things because I'm not certain about virtually anything. Um, but I actually have a, a more authentic degree of confidence in what I do know and what I don't know. Whereas previously, it would sound like I was more confident in how I was maybe stating things and saying things with more certainty and conviction and saying that this is the way it is. So it seems more confident. But really, I couldn't have been confident because I didn't actually know. So I think it's that weird paradox of, yeah, less certainty, less can, uh, or I think in things that you, that we are confident of knowing, I think you can have conviction in them, but you, like as the, as the famous phrase, I forget who said it was like having those strong convictions, but holding them very loosely, I think is the way to go. That if something is genuinely something you've looked at, and you believe you've looked at the best uh, evidence on that, you can have a certain position. Um, but once you come across better information or someone points out, hey, this is actually not accurate or it's a bit more nuanced than that, then you can modify it. So I think, yeah, it's holding those ideas quite loosely. So I would like to think right now that um, uh, I don't have certainty over anything because 100% certainty doesn't really exist. Uh but I would hopefully be more confident in when I do say something to my audience, um, if I'm indicating I'm of a certain position, that I, I put more stock in that, okay, this is really important that I actually think this and I can base it on something because people are actually listening to this now. Uh, so I hope that makes sense. Um, mm. But yeah. 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 Um Alan, a question for you is, do you think that people tend to gravitate towards uh, content that is at their level? Because um, I know like the likes of yourself and Danny put out some, some quite complex content. And I know it's the audience that you have are tend to be people who are educated in nutrition already. Uh, do you find that that itself is a barrier or is, is that something that's just always going to, to naturally happen? Um, no, I think... Uh... I think it depends on the, on the person, but I think that people in a learning journey where they're really coming at it from a place of, I guess, authenticity, um, 
on purpose. You know, it's like, I need, I want to learn this stuff because I want to be a better practitioner. I want to be a better dietitian, nutritionist, um, strength and conditioning coach, whatever. Um, I think people that have that element of purpose, they'll get to a certain point of learning where what they've learned just won't actually provide any next step up in, in the process. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's, I think it's, I think it's a curve, you know, not quite Dunning-Kruger necessarily, but I do, I mean, I laugh every time I look at the graph because I know when I was on that end and I know what I did with my diet at the time. And I, you know, I know what I did with my life at the time. And it's just like, and you, you see this, this kind of curve of like Danny described going place of really comfortable with uncertainty. Um, but I, I think, I think people look to scale up the level of the content that they consume as their comfort level with their knowledge starts to grow and starts to expand. Um, because it's the only way that they'll continue to build on that knowledge and to layer on it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, with, with, with the, with the website, for example, like I made a very conscious decision that the content was not going to be written for, for, for lay people. I mean, you, you, you could be not in nutrition, sure. But, you know, people that are from some sort of health sciences or biosciences background. Um, and that was, and that was deliberate uh, for multiple reasons, because there's different levels at which that kind of content facilitates um, that, that level of learning for people. So I, I think it just, I think you just gravitate up, you know, and I think you start at a certain level where some information that you're consuming suits the needs of the learning at that point in time. But for people that are on a journey of learning where they're trying to be a better coach or more scientifically literate, then they'll eventually just end up gravitating up and up and up to consuming more complex information. And even if they spend a bit of time with that complexity, not quite understanding it, they stay there until they do understand it. And, th and then they're capable of moving on. So I think it's, I think it's a curve. I think it's a process. Yeah. So, so I won't be seeing you doing any kind of Sigma nutrition, TikTok videos anytime soon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Set up a Sigma TikTok account. <laughs> yeah so, so so eric do you think that like doing doing podcasts like this where we talk about these topics and we, we discuss it and debate it do you think we're really preaching to the choir or you know people who listen to these podcasts are already going to be in that mindset or what do you think like the future holds for for content in in terms of the the fitness space going forward mm. do you think it's going to get worse like just more muddied um, or, or do you see kind of light at the end of the tunnel? I think there's going to be more efforts to solve this as a problem because so many people acknowledge it as a problem that you get stuck in bubbles that there is misinformation, that there is disinformation. It's a, it's a frequent topic of discussion among educators. Um, and I think that in and of itself is a good sign. So I carry a, <laughs> let's say if we lived in a, in a static world where people weren't trying to solve this, I carry a, similar pessimistic view to Danny that there's only algorithms are only going to get better at filtering us. And, you know, like there's only an increasing population and things aren't necessarily getting better in every first world country. So it's just going to turn into a hellscape and of Mad Max. But at the same time, I'm also acknowledging like that's kind of a, 
relatively fear-based perception of the world that assumes that everyone who also sees this problem is like, well, I can't do anything about it anyway. Back to YouTube, you know? (laughs) And certainly that's a lot of people, but I think there are uh, a a pretty large amount of people who are vocal and going, this is a problem. We need to do something about it. Um, You see documentaries coming out about, you know, social media. You see uh, conspiracy theorists theorists appearing on, on podcasts. I mean, sorry, conspiracy theory, uh, like in uh, researchers appearing on podcasts and, and those discussions and books coming out. So I think, I think I'm 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 generally thinking there's going to be some more of a pendulum swing to where there's going to be some more options and, and methods and engagement with the actual social media itself, where things get slightly better. Um, as far as are we preaching to the choir? I think that really depends on how you operate. And whether you are primarily just kind of rallying the, the, the troops or whether you're attempting to reach out to a broader audience. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I definitely, I operate in some spaces in the same way that Alan does, where I am speaking to a certain th- entry level of people, you know, but I also operate in other spaces where I'm trying to reach a different entry level. So with me, because I'm a, a sports scientist specifically for like strength sport and physique sport. And that covers a lot of ground, nutrition, training, psychology. Um, I sometimes am speaking to other sports scientists. I'm sometimes speaking to coaches. I'm sometimes speaking directly to athletes or people who are recreationally training for similar outcomes as those athletes. And I'm very conscious of that. So that means when I write a blog for 3DMJ or when I write a article for mass or when I do a podcast with Omar, I am thinking very differently about how I say what I say. Some things are constant, uh, like for example, having an appropriate level of certainty and having like a scaled level of confidence in what I say, kind of like Danny was talking about. I was reflecting as you were saying that Danny, and I think the big difference between me in 2011 and me now is I had like a light switch of, I've decided this is evidence-based, so I'm gonna speak it as truth or I don't know. And now I have this gradiated scale of, I've been exposed to a little bit of this data. What I've seen is indirect versus I did my thesis on this and I've read the, the most current studies and meta-analyses and this probably isn't going to change, but you know, here's where we don't know things. So anyway, I think being able to operate across that space is, is hard to do. Um, but I think you can do it. Um, and that's how I try to make the biggest impact, but it's certainly not the only way. Um, so for example, with Sigma Nutrition Radio, I would say that there's a large proportion of people who listen to it who have their own audiences or have their own clients um, or are going to let that influence what research questions they have or how they talk to their master's students, you know, things like that, which I think is great. Um, so there's, there are entry points for societal change that is meaningful and positive for people who speak at a very high level. Um, and I think as a, as a researcher, that's something I'm often very aware of is that shouting at each other on Twitter maybe isn't the way to go, but finding ways to influence uh, the research landscape, science, other science communicators, coaches, et cetera, um, publishing open access, um, doing some science communication on the side, not just, you know, publishing, but actually then talking about it and helping people understand it and going out in the community to, to spread that information. I think that's really important. Um, and that, enables you to speak outside of the typical Venn diagram you operate in. Um, I reflect back to when I first started engaging with content, I did it initially just as an athlete. 
And there wasn't like Alan was talking about that kind of genuine growth mindset of I'm here to learn and become better at my craft. It was, I want to be the most effective bodybuilder and power lifter. So you're the person I've decided has the right information. Just tell me what to do. And if you started to speak to me with this critical thinking nonsense, like, listen, ass, I just need to know how many grams of carbohydrate eat post-training to maximize insulin. All right. I don't, and then like, like, but but does insulin really need to get, like, I don't want to think. All right. Just tell me to get jacked, you know? So I'm acutely aware that there's a lot of people who have that, uh, like just the facts, ma'am kind of perspective. Um, and basically my content there is convincing them that perhaps they need to be just a minimalistic amount of critical thinking to not get things wrong and get the wrong questions answered. And then I'm also aware that something ticked over in me where I decided I wanted this to be a career. And then I started engaging with the highest level content beyond my capabilities and watching and learning and trying to build myself up to that level um, and trying to keep that, that ladder down so that people have that access. Um, so I think know your audience, but know what your audience could become and see them as not static is very important. Uh, and I think it's also important for people to collaborate. Um, that's a big part of why we started Iron Culture and why we've had like a guest guest list across kind of the whole, uh, you know, cinematic multiverse of, of the evidence-based and, and lifting sphere um, on there, because I think there is a lot of these little subdivisions and all of these social media uh, confinements that we've, we've talked about uh, the bubbles are happening always all the time, you know? So um, looking to use platforms like podcasts, I think is a really good way to get outside of that and to make sure that you're not just catering to a single audience. So yeah, I, I, I would like to say, I hope not. Um, I do think it's harder to break out into a very, very broad space. Um, but I've also seen my audience grow pretty substantially over time. So I, I think that, that, that you can do it. It's just maybe a slower climb. I actually have uh, remind me of one example that might be useful to tie a lot of what Eric has just said and actually ties back to something we, we referenced earlier about um, but both how to engage online, but also your question as to like, are we just preaching to the choir at this conversation? And in the sense that, sure, everyone listening here is probably already sold on being evidence-based and critical thinking. However, there's also a lesson in this of how they go and engage. And the example I remembered was actually something I think Eric said to me on the very first podcast I did with him, which was probably seven years ago. Um, And it it was something along the lines of... I think it was 2013. Wow. Yeah. So uh, yeah, seven, eight years ago. Um, So it's something along the lines of, um, because because earlier in the conversation, we were talking about how some people just got unlucky to follow certain information and just actually believe something is true. They don't, aren't purposely trying to, like like just calling them an idiot because you have, are in evidence-based community because you got lucky to be in it, isn't probably useful. And Eric was like, if someone says something on, say they comment on a post and they start referencing carbohydrates and insulin and, and, and fat gain and so on, lead with a question and, and essentially ask, well, why is it you believe that? What, what is it about insulin control that you think is leading to this? And through a series of those questions, you can see, well, does this person actually really believe this based on uh, a, a ton of stuff or have they just been misinformed by someone and can your questions highlight to them? Actually, maybe I'm not so sure 
this guy actually was really nice to me, responded, gave me something to think about. Now I'll go and look into it. And I, I would guess that there are a large number of people who are currently, let's say, within this quote-unquote evidence-based community who arrived at that point from one of these other fringe places because someone like an Eric or, or uh, others engaged with them in a respectful manner as opposed to calling them an idiot and driving them further back into where they came from. So I think there are people like, like Alan mentioned who purposely put out disinformation who have been presented this data before but are choosing to ignore it in, because they want to profit or boost their own ego who absolutely deserve to be ridiculed for certain positions. However, just the average person who follows them might just have bad information. So they maybe don't deserve the, to be treated the same way. So it was just yeah. one example that I remember Eric said that might be useful there. I, I think, yeah, I think that's a, I, I'm reminded of um, a story of a friend of mine who's a GP here told me about three three years ago, give or take, three, four years ago, you know, medics who at the time was kind of, you know, getting into some of the more lifestyle medicine approaches. And there was, there was a conference, big, big conference held by a group called the Public Health Collaboration. He didn't know anything about them, but it was going to be focused entirely on nutrition. And that was music to a lot of medics ears, particularly GPs. He worked in a really socially deprived area, um, uh, kind of outside um, Bristol, basically, um, you know, we're seeing patients who are at the bottom, the bottom of the ladder in terms of, you know, the UK's social net and uh, went along to this conference. Uh, it turns out, I mean, that this was the hindsight joke we were laughing about. The conference was, was a low carb lunatic asylum. Uh, the whole day they were putting, at one point someone was putting up uh, uh, a, a picture of a banana on screen and talking about their own blood glucose monitoring and the, the audience started booing the image of the banana, right? This is, this is, this is low. These are grown, grown adults, medical doctors. Um, anyway, the, the, the moral of the story is that you had a sizable chunk of that crowd who were already dyed in the wool in, in the, in the belief system, wearing it on their sleeve. They're probably not coming back. But a huge chunk of that audience, my friend included, were there out of interest and were none the wiser. They, they got no nutrition education in the medical curriculum. They're seeing studies presented. There's this veil of science being pulled over the information. But there's this added ingredient that's really important, which is trust. So he's trusting that his medical colleagues that are presenting are have obviously done their due diligence by by reference to the evidence because because and so it's that trust within the within the profession um and so i, I think that there's these levels uh, at which people as danny said like you know there are people that put out disinformation then there's also people and they're not just always lay members of of, of the public who come across information and pick it up and a trust the source that they're getting it from for various reasons uh, B, it might have this veneer of science. Well, someone cited a study, so, I mean, it must be scientific. And you get the, that combination able to uh, superimpose itself on that individual's lack of knowledge at that point in time to a point where, you know, they now think what they've heard is 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 the way, the truth, and the light, so to speak. Um now, there are people that will be open to being disabused of whatever they've 
they've they've thought and there are people that will just continue to go down the rabbit hole um, but i but i do think that and this applies to so many conversations we're having now at the level of you know society politics i i think the ability to if you can only see the other side and you're only capable of portraying them in pejorative straw man terms then you're the problem yeah very good points alan Danny, to wrap up, you made a, a really good point with regards to how those who produce content treat others online. I think at some point, I probably pestered the hell out of all the trees asking you questions. And now here you are on the podcast, talk to me. Whereas I, I know particularly for Eric, going back many years, pestered the hell out of him. But um, I think like you mentioned, those who are on the on the fringe or have sort of uh, whether they they mean to do it or not that that they put out misinformation they do, do they do tend to treat others quite harshly and and not necessarily as a peer to peer level and, and almost look down on people as if they're um inferior because of their lack of knowledge and and dismiss them as being idiots or something even though this person might be a genius in in economics or or otherwise um but thanks again, guys. Or thanks again, everybody, for coming on. Really appreciate these conversations. I think they're really important. And I will certainly put all your TikTok links in the show notes. So if you made it this far, I just want to say thanks for listening. I assume that most people don't finish podcasts because I know that I myself don't finish a lot of podcasts. So thanks again for listening to an hour of all of us talk, mainly the other three. But I would really appreciate if you hit the subscribe button and also left me a review on whatever platform that you are listening to because that helps with the the ratings and the rankings and getting more people to see the podcast and then ultimately getting helping me get more guests onto the podcast it will also allow you to be able to see more future guests like this and if you did like this episode because it is slightly different please do let me know reach out to me um let me know what you thought because i always do appreciate feedback and most of the guests that i get on are as a result of people who have requested them that follow the show. So once again, guys, thank you, and I will see you in a future episode.